0: Well, again, we are in a text very familiar to most of us, a text which is commonly known as the Great Commission, and this is a text and subject that has been somewhat on my heart for the last few months, and uh, more so lately with our social climate and all that's going on in, in our world, and this This text is is very important. It's somewhat the pinnacle of both the Old Testament and the New. It is where all the Old Testament and the Gospel accounts lead up to you in this springboard which launches the rest of the New Testament. Kevin D. Young says of it, The Great Commission, whether at the close or at the outset of the narrative, are more than random parting words from Jesus. They actually shape the whole story either as the climax to which everything points or as a fountain from which everything flows, end quote. These are Jesus' final words recorded in Matthew's gospel account. And like one on their deathbed, final words carry with them some weight. They reveal what's important and valuable to that individual. These final recorded words of our Lord here are no different. So let us go ahead and, and dive into our text. We have a lot to cover and very little time to do so. So we will we'll begin in, in uh, verse 16 here. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Here I would like for us to, to see the, and examine the location of this commission. The setting of this mandate is given here because it helps convey the seriousness of this great commission in which our Lord gives to his disciples. It is not just some random detail that is often overlooked, but gives us some good insight as to the importance of the rest of the text. The disciples went to Galilee as they were instructed by the Lord Jesus In the beginning of this chapter, the two Marys go to Jesus' tomb. Only to be met by an angel that reminds them or tells them that he has risen. The angel then says to them, Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Matthew 28, 7. In the following verses, Jesus himself appears to them and says, Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 9. Jesus predicted that it would be in Galilee that he would meet his disciples after his resurrection. Matthew 26, 32. It says, but after I am raised, he says, I will go before you to Galilee. With this imperative desire for them to meet in Galilee... Jesus still appears, according to the other gospel accounts, to the disciples at least three times, according to John 21.14. He appears to them the evening, evening of his resurrection, John 20.19, then again when Thomas doubts, John 20.26, 20, and the third time where they were fishing at the Sea of Galilee, most likely on their way to meet with him, John 21.4. So despite seeing them prior to our text here, Jesus still waits until the point of this mountaintop in Galilee to give them this commission. Now, Galilee is no doubt a a significant area when it comes to the life and ministry of our Lord. For it is in Galilee where a substantial amount of Jesus' life and ministry took place. His home base was was right there near the Sea of Galilee in in a fishing town called Capernaum. Matthew 4, 12-16 gives us specific details in this. It is where the majority of the disciples were from, Acts 1-11, and where they were called by the Lord, Matthew four eighteen. Galilee was in the northern part of Israel, and the landscape of this place was very mountainous. Now, there's no denying that mountains have a significant place in the Word of God, from Mount Sinai to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, There's something about mountaintops we read in the the, uh, Bible. And Scripture gives us a hint that the mountaintop in which Jesus gives a Sermon on the Mount on is likely in Galilee, according to Matthew 4.23. He was in that area during that time. It is also thought that it is a mountain in Galilee that the Transfiguration took place, Matthew 17.22. Now, we cannot be sure that the mountain in which Jesus gives this great commission is one and the same of all these other texts. But there is no denying that there is significance of these two locations that would be the final time that Jesus sees them, or would not be the final time Jesus sees them. Um, it, It is needless to say that this wasn't just some random spot that our Lord picked out or a location that had no significance. On the contrary, it was a location that bared great significance. In the past, the disciples would have known of a mountaintop in Galilee where significant things took place. So when Jesus directs the disciples, even having seen them three times prior to this, that they are to go to a mountaintop on Galilee, they knew that something important was about to take place. As I noted before, it was in Galilee that the majority of the disciples were called to follow him. But it it was on a mountaintop most likely in Galilee, that they were appointed to be apostles. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they may go be with him and might send, him, send them out to preach. Mark three thirteen through 14 So it was on a mountaintop in Galilee that our Lord gave to them their first commission. And it would seem fitting that it would be on uh, that it would, it would be seem fitting that it is on this same mountaintop that Jesus commissions them in the same like fashion. It was on a mountaintop in Galilee that Jesus made them disciples and would be in the same setting in which he charged them to go make disciples. It was on a mountaintop that he took on these Galilean fishermen and it is in likewise the same fashion that he is sending them out to be fishers of men. Next, we look at verse 17. It says, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, scholars think that there were two groups present here. There was the 11 disciples, which the text clearly shows us. And some think that there was also a larger group of Jesus' followers. And they believe that this group might be the 500 eyewitnesses that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15.6. Speaking of the resurrected Christ, he says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now with our text landing somewhere between 25 and 30 days after our Lord's resurrection... And the trek for the disciples from Jerusalem to Galilee would have been approximately about a week long. It is, it is safe to speculate that the word had gotten out, that Jesus had indeed resurrected. And the other followers might have been keeping close eye on the disciples. The rumor was spreading at this time that they had stolen his body But there was rumors again that no, he had indeed resurrected. So there was most likely a big group of followers who who wanted to know. And and there was also followers other than the disciples to whom Jesus appeared to. Think of uh, the road to Emmaus in in Luke 24, 13 through 35. They would have wanted to know if the rumors were true. Such a momentous event. Their eyes would have been glued on the disciples if these rumors were floating around, which I'm sure they were. But the emphasis of which Matthew is focusing on is not the 500. It is the 11. And though commentators seem to be split on this, I believe that it is the 11 that Matthew is referring to here when, uh that he's emphasizing in these verses. So we see here, what does it say, that when they see Jesus, they worship him. Now, this is not the first time the resurrected Christ has had been worshiped in previous uh, verses. In Matthew twenty nine, he is worshiped by, the, by Mary's by the Marys. <clears throat> in Luke 24:52, he's also worshiped. We know that only God alone is to receive worship according to none other than Jesus Himself. Um, if you remember the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, when Satan comes to him and says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will but bow down and worship me, Jesus responds, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Matthew 4, 9 through 10. These instances where Jesus accepts worship are direct claims to his deity. So the disciples come in reverence and worship of Jesus. But Matthew makes an interesting point there. Though they may be worshiping, what does it say? But some doubted. Now again, going back to what some commentators believe, that the ones that doubted were the 500 eyewitnesses that were there. Maybe they didn't get a a good glimpse of, of Jesus. He was far off. They couldn't tell if that was really him. But again... Matthew's focus here of this text is on the 11. It seems somewhat odd to us that the 11, after having appeared to them at least three times prior to this, that these disciples would still doubt. But when we read the gospel accounts, we really shouldn't be surprised at this. The disciples had a somewhat... um, History of doubt, to say the least. It would seem that, that they were riddled with times of displaying great faith only to backslide into times of great doubt. You think of Peter when he's, he's in the boat and, and Jesus is walking on water and, and they're scared. He says, do not be afraid for his And he says, if it's you, Lord, let me come out to you. Call me and command me to come out to you. And he does and he's walking on water with Jesus And then he looks around at his surroundings. He begins to sing. He's like, help me. And Jesus grabs him. What does he say? He says, oh, you of little faith. Why do you doubt? Matthew 14, 31. This word that Jesus used here, why do you doubt to Peter, is the exact same word in the Greek that Matthew displays here in in our text. It means to waver. Or it can, has a connotation of being a perplexed or have, be at a loss. These men were lacking in faith all throughout Jesus' ministry as well. And even, and even displayed after his resurrection. They did not believe the eyewitnesses account, Mark 16, 11, Mark 16, 13, Luke 24, 11. They, dis, they displayed disbelief in the midst of his resurrected presence, Luke 24, 38 and Luke 24, 41. And we're all familiar with old Doubting Thomas, John 20, 25. So we should not be surprised when the text says that they worshipped him, but some doubted. They were greatly perplexed and at a loss. And we get this. How often do do we say to ourselves... You know, I needed to pinch myself to make sure I wasn't dreaming, to make sure this was real. I mean think about think about a, a, a sudden tragic event in your life. Times where you sit there and, and gaze off and, and say, is this really happening? Did that just happen? And you're you're waiting to wake up, or even if it's good news sometimes. We get surprised with good news and we sit there and perplex, at a loss and disbelief and doubting like, no, this can't happen. Because we've all had those dreams, right? Those dreams that seem so real. Something really cool is happening and then you wake up, you're like, ah. Or dreams that are terrifying. I remember, I, I once had a dream when my. Firstborn was only about a year old or two years old. Where all of a sudden I, I heard a, a, a gunshot. And I looked over and he was hit. And I held him as he, as he died. This was a very vivid dream I had. I woke up in tears. I mean, my face was covered in, in tears. And I looked around and I realized it was... I knew it was a dream that I had, and, but I still had to go to his room. I still had to make sure he was okay. And even though he was there and he was okay, he was breathing, he was fine. It was just a dream. I still had to sit there and, and just take in my surroundings and remind myself that it was just a dream. I was doubting even the reality in which I was in, because how vivid that dream was. This is most likely what the disciples are displaying what they are seeing has defined all, all reality. They're worshiping him but are perplexed. Is this real? Am I dreaming? Is, is this really our Lord? How can this be? And it is here that we see the great display of the mercy and patience of our Lord. He does not meet them with harsh rebuke. Nor does he turn them away and say, still with your doubt. Despite their doubts, Jesus draws to them, calls to them, speaks with them. What grace of Christ, who does not call to himself only those who have the strongest faith. For if that were the case, none would be called for it is he that establishes our faith, Ephesians 2:8, And not only that, but sustains that faith and causes it to be strengthened. And though, the, and though these disciples doubt and display weak faith, they will not stay that way. Our Lord will establish a faith in them that will cause them to turn the world upside down. For his kingdom, he will establish in these weak, wavering, doubting men a faith that will endure to the end, a faith that will endure through persecution and death of martyrdom. Believer, it is okay to face times of doubt, but it is not okay to stay in the state of doubt. For the one that doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. James 1.6 Praise God that Christ is faithful even in the midst of our unfaithfulness and doubt. This is how God strengthens our faith in Him. By making us more aware of His faithfulness to us. How true this is when we reflect on the person we were a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. To see the faithful, sovereign hand of our Lord on our life. To look back and, and, and see His faithfulness throughout. Even in the times where we weren't even believers. This is why Paul, when he writes his epistles, always Starts with what Christ has done, the faithfulness of God and through the gospel, and says, Because of this, now you're able to go then and act accordingly. To see the faithful, sovereign hand of God through our lives and in times it encourages us, it strengthens us, it strengthens our, our faith. The scenery in which this great commission is given is on top of a mountaintop in Galilee, but the state in which it is given to the disciples is pure mercy and grace on behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ. This commission is given to these men who are weak in faith, wavering and down, and do not seem to be qualified for the task that is to be given. But this goes to show us that the power of the gospel does not rest in the strength of man. Which leads me to my next point the authority of this commission. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Our Lord speaks to his disciples here before commissioning them, and he first tells them by what authority in which he this commission is given. This again bears weight and importance on the task that they are about to receive. And we must understand that Jesus was never without deity. Jesus was never without authority. We, we see that he had uh, authority to forgive sins, Matthew 9.6. Authority over nature, Matthew 8.26. Authority over demons, Matthew 12.22. Over sickness and disease, Matthew 9.35. But he did, however, in his humility, in his incarnation, was under the authority of, of his parents. He submitted himself to the authority of, of earthly rulers, and man, when he allowed himself to be arrested and stand trial before Pilate, and even to death, and death on a cross. This Greek word for authority, exousia, in the Greek, it, it cannot uh, cannot say a right to rule that arises out of a present condition or state. Because of Jesus' victory over sin, death, and hell. He is given all authority by the Father. Just as the author of Hebrews states, You made him for a little while lower than, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Hebrews 2, 6-8. Before commissioning his disciples, Jesus asserts his authority to do so. Again, these men are not to go in their own strength. They are not to go in their own power. They are not to go in their own authority, but that of the Lord's. They are not necessarily to go to do, but to go and proclaim that which has been done. As Kevin Young states again, God does not send us out of his church to conquer. He sends us out in the name of the one who has already conquered. We go only because he reigns, end quote. Notice the scope of this authority there. What does it say? What is the scope of heaven and on earth? Jesus' authority is not limited by jurisdiction or geography. It is not limited to only the spiritual, but the physical as well. It is not restricted by any rulers, kings, presidents, governors, principalities, This commissional call is great because of the great importance and authority behind it. This commissional call bears the authority of the Lord. It bears the authority of the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, and in his name, the name that every knee shall bow and tongue confess to his lordship that these disciples are to go in. This commissional call bears the highest authority there is. And it's because of that we must feel the weight of what is about to be told to the disciples. It is because of this authority that we are to feel the weight and importance of this great commissional call. Now let us look at the call itself. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe observe all that I have commanded you. Herein lays the mission of the church. Now, this would seem somewhat redundant for us, would it not? Needless to exhaust this. But unfortunately, in our day and age, it seems that it is something that the church has forgotten or at least lost sight of. The church today seems to be more involved and consumed with things other than this mission. Some churches seem to be more concerned with societal, temporal issues rather than spiritual, eternal ones. Social issues, political issues, economic issues, poverty, marriage, family, etc. While these things may be important, they are not, however, the mission of the church. It is important that we identify this because as Stephen Neal once said, if everything is mission, nothing is mission. I remember when we were at our old uh, uh, location uh, off of 8th Street and it was a Wednesday night. We got done doing uh, uh, youth and I was locking up. I was coming down the stairs and there was an older gentleman on a rascal a motorized cart. And... He said, hey, are you, are you a pastor here? I said, I'm a youth pastor, yeah. <clears throat> Can I talk to you? Sure. And started talking to him. And he laid out this ordeal that he was going through that he couldn't, you know, he didn't pay, he couldn't pay his rent. And he was about to be kicked out of his apartment complex. And he's like, so, if, you know, if you could give me like six to $800, <laughs> man, it'd it help, man. And I. I'm sorry. Who who are you again? And I, I I told him I said listen, sir, I'm I'm very sorry. Um, I don't have six hundred six hundred or eight hundred dollars to give you. Um, he said, well, I mean, I don't know if you could go in there and you know, I don't know if you could talk to somebody or talk to talk to the rest of the the church or whatever and you know maybe you know do something, you know. And I was like, uh, well. I'm the only one here, I'm the only person here, Um, but we really don't hand out money. That's not what we do. And he seemed to get upset and said, oh, you're the church. That's what you you guys are here for. Come on. Come on. This may surprise some of you, but it is not the mission of the church to feed the hungry. It is not the mission of the church to clothe the poor. It is not the mission of the church to fix your marriages. It is not the mission of the church to solve social justice issues, fix political issues, clean up the city. Now, these things may be addressed by the church, and I don't want to say they're not, Important. They are very important. And, and we, may, we may be involved in that as Christians. But it is very important that we understand that these are not the primary goal and mission of the church. The church may, out of love for people who are creating the image of God, clothe and feed people and, and help people out. And we may do good things that are important and needed at times. Make no mistake about that. They bring glory to God, but we must be careful not to elevate these things above or mistake them for the primary mission of the church, which is what? Look at our text Go make disciples. This is the primary goal, this is the mission. Of the church and must take precedence above all else now before we look at the how of this commission let us first first look at the who this commission is to be taken to whom all nations this is important to understand because as most of you know that the Jewish people thought that salvation belonged to the Jews alone or those who converted to Judaism All Romans and Samaritans and all Gentiles are enemies of God who will all be destroyed. But we Jews, we're the chosen people. But Jesus here announces his universal authority and thus his commission calls to go out universally to all nations or people groups. This will be and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, the ends of the world. And their location is significant too. As I said, that, that Galilee was on the northern part of Israel. And if they were on a tall enough mountain, they could look uh, south and see Judea and, and Jerusalem. They could see that area. And behind them would be the land of Gentiles. In fact, Galilee is called Galilee of the Gentiles. It was inhabited by Hellenistic Jews and and Gentiles at this time. What an appropriate place for this commission to take place. And the gospel message, message is to go out to all people with no distinctions. For its saving power is the same for all who place their trust in it. And the condemnation and eternal damnation will be the same for all who reject it. Now, let us look at the how of this commission. And I want us to look and focus on this word go. See it there? Go. It's in the title. Now, I don't want to do a, a grammar or syntax or any kind of content dump on you right now. That's, that's not for you. That's for, for my time of study. But I think it is important that we understand something about this. See, in the English, in your Bibles right there, it says go. And, and that's a verb, an action. But in the Greek, this word is what is known as a participle, which is a... um. A verbal adjective. Uh, it gives it gives description to the main clause. Am I right, Robin? <laughs> Ask Robin. She'll give you. She'll she'll clarify everything I just messed up. But it, it is a, a participle. It usually ends in ing or ed or en. Uh, so so the Greek reads here, going. And why this is important is because if someone changes how we read this section. We usually read this text and see the, see the command and then put the emphasis on go. That's what I was doing. That's why the text says, or the title of this message is go therefore. And I text Phil, I was like, can you change the title? It's almost too late. I said, okay, I'll just address it at the sermon. <laughs> <clears throat> so we put our emphasis on this go. And, and we put our, uh, that as the command. But, but we, we must read this as as Going. Uh, the word therefore connects, uh, the therefore here connects the authority with the command. And after reading this great authority that Jesus lays out, it is implied that disciples will now be then going. It doesn't have to command them, okay, now go. Here's what I want you to do. Here's all the authority. Now I want you to go. He says, no, no, no. Here's all the authority that's been placed unto me. Now you having... It could be understood and rendered, having gone now, you will be going. It is assumed. Imagine with me a judge who John Hinden back there, you know, you do some some warrant serving, right, and, and things like that. So imagine John is standing before a judge, and the judge says, he's looking at this evidence piling up for this, house or whatever and he says okay the evidence is clear I, I believe there's there's drug trafficking there's there's human trafficking there's some bad stuff going on here bad people and you know what as judge I have the authority to invade their privacy I have the authority to to have you go in bust down the doors and make arrests if necessary and he hands John a warrant John wouldn't look at him and say you want me to go It's been implied by the authority that the judge has given him. In the same way, Jesus lays out this authority. And having heard this, it is assumed now that the disciples will be going. It is not a choice. They will be going. It is implied. Now, having gone, going. So, what is the first process that Jesus lays out for his disciples? They will be going, and going in his uh, authoritative name to proclaim the gospel. And it should be obviously implied to every Christian that when they are saved, they are to be going. They They should be available, just as Isaiah says, Here I am, Lord, send me. There is to be intention behind this going out, and I think that's a major problem that we have is that we are not intentional with the gospel. Let me make a stab in the dark here, how some of us approach evangelism. I'm saved. I believe the gospel. I believe in its power and save. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to live my life in such a way I'm going to do good things. I'm going to always try to have a smile on my face and be in a good mood. And over time, months, years, decades, someone's going to take notice of this. And they're going to say to me, you know what? I've always noticed you're in a good mood all the time. You do good things. What's up with that? And I'll tell them it's because of Jesus and then I'll invite them to church where I will hand them off to the pastor or elder and introduce them, and I've evangelized. <laughs> How'd I do? I know. I know. That's, my, that's been my attitude toward it, right? Here's the thing the gospel and its power to save is not found in how you live your life. The implications of it, yes. But the power of the gospel to save, that is found in how Christ lived his life. It is not found in how you die to yourself. It is found in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. The gospel is not hinged on you. As if to say that if you failed at being nice or or doing good things, then the power of the gospel is voided. You don't live out the gospel in a sense. We say that, and I understand why we say that, and I understand the meaning why we say that, but we must be careful. We don't live out the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We live out the implications of the gospel. We live out the implications of those things in our lives. <clears throat> but you don't live them out. The message of the gospel is a message of Christ accomplished reconciling work on the behalf of sinful men this is the message that is to be intentionally proclaimed this is to be the message that we are to be going out with Paul states in in Romans 10 14-15 how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him who they have never heard And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, let me be clear. Your life, as we saw last week with Bruce's message, your life better reflect the implications of the gospel that you are proclaiming. Your life in good works will be a testament to the new creation that you are because of the gospel-saving power in your life. Next we see in this the next step we see in making disciples involves what? Baptism. Baptism is a visual outward symbol displaying that which has taken place spiritually inward. Baptism implies repentance of sin, trust in the gospel to save, a dying to oneself, and being raised up as a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. It is a public testimony in the believer's life. A uh, public testimony of one's faith in Christ, as well as one of, his, one of the first steps of obedience in the life of a Christian. And here we see that all the members of the Trinity are represented. Notice the language and the name, that's singular, and the name. But three names are given. One salvation work is the work of the triune God. God the Father wrought or, or planned out our salvation, Ephesians 1, through 3, 6. God the Son brought our salvation or bought it with the uh, shedding of His blood. And God, by the Holy Spirit, brought it to us through the faith and seals us in, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In this, we are being identified as being made one with Him, as was Jesus' prayer in John 17, 21. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism states that baptism, quote, signifies our ingrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace. Baptism is the ingrafting also to you and the family of God and to God's adoptive family, which is why being brought into a church is often linked to it. Turn with me, Will, to the book of Acts. I'm going to look at, at chapter 2 real quick. I want us to see something here. Chapter 2 of the book of Acts. we see in chapter 2, after Peter gives his, his incredible sermon, these, these people are pierced to the heart. They repent of their sins. And it says there, look what it says. Um, in verse 41, chapter 2, verse 41, after all this, it says, they confess, they confess their sins. They repent of their sins. And it says, verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and then what? Added that day, about 3,000. Added to what? The church. They were engrafted in. Added to the church. Those who do not have a high view of baptism, I have found, are usually the same ones who do not have a high view of the assembly of the saints. Those who put off baptism and disobedience are usually the same to put off attending church in a likewise fashion. How important these things are and crucial in the life of a believer. Now we come to the third and final how of this commission. A disciple is one... Who is a learner. That is literally what, what the word disciple means. It is called a, a learner. And Jesus says here, after baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, in order to teach them to observe all I have commanded. A disciple is one who is a learner. Notice that Jesus is not looking for numbers, he's not looking for statistics. He's not looking for mere responses of those who make professions based on emotionalism. The church's mission to make disciples does not simply consist of conversion, but of teaching. Making disciples involves teaching them the commands of Christ. But notice, it's not only that they are to be taught, but observed. Our Lord is not interested in heads full of knowledge only, but lives full of obedience. I have known plenty of people in my life, and I bet you have too, who probably grew up in the church or whatnot, who have a head full of knowledge of the Word of God. But lives that do not match it. Lives that are not obedient to it. Lives that do not comply to it. Lives that live in opposition to it. Disciples of Christ are not only to be hearers of the word, but doers as well. James 1.22, The apostle Paul said to the believers in Rome, "You who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to what, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed." Romans six seventeen. This shows us that disciple making. It is a process. It is not a a shotgun blast. It is not a weekend long or week long event. And it is not a production. This is one issue I take with some of these plays and and events and scenario things that, that churches do. I've gone through them for material and exhibit <sighs> a um, I've gone to some of these things and and you know you, you walk through and you see scenarios that scare you and then you're taught you're, you're told that you know you, you see a, a scenario of hell being played out and then you see a somewhat presentation of the gospel and then they say would you like to believe and you're like well I don't want to go to hell I could see me getting in a car accident and dying like that so why not and then you, you say this makeshift prayer, and they, they may pray with you, and they hand you a card and invite you to the church, and that's it. No follow-through. Believers, that is dangerous. I don't know if it was Paul Washer, but I, I forget who it was. He said that, that the sinner's prayer has sent more people to hell than anything. This is dangerous and, frankly, irresponsible. That person goes on believing that they are saved, only to hear, depart from me, for I never knew you. True disciples of Christ are those that hear and do. They observe, they, they Comply, they obey the word. Verse 20b, our Lord says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Finally, we have the promise of comfort for this great commission. Up until this point, these men have been overwhelmed by the gravity of this task, like any of us would. This task of taking this great message to the ends of the earth lay with these men. Jesus says, I'm leaving now, and you are to be going in my authority. Huh? These men who just three weeks prior, when Jesus was arrested, ran and hid themselves out of fear. These men who lacked faith These men who even now at this point probably are struggling with doubt. How could men like this be used for such a great task? A task such as this is impossible. But then the words of our Lord come. Behold, I am with you always. With these words, that which thought of as impossible, not only becomes possible, but assured. The promise is not that I will be with you, but I am with you. Christ's presence is always with his followers in the presence of his Holy Spirit, which was promised in John sixteen seven, And it will be he who will strengthen them, lead them, and supply them with that which they need to fulfill this great commission. Some think that this great commission was given strictly to the apostles. But the last phrase here confronts that notion. Look at it. How long will he be with them? To the end of the age. If the apostles were to completely fulfill this commission, then, they, then there would be no need to imply such a far-reaching guarantee. The end of the age marks his return. So this promise makes clear that the commission to make disciples disciples lay with us just as it did with them. Now I ask you, does this task, does this great commission bring about trepidation in you? Does the task of evangelizing, of presenting Christ seem above you, beyond a a common believer such as yourself, It does I. But this, believer, is the prerequisite of those whom Jesus calls out to go. For again, the power of this message, of this gospel, does not lay in the strength, wisdom, power, or eloquence of man. Just as if someone were to to chop down a tree using a fine-tuned, sharpened axe. There would would be marvel at the tool. But if that same tree were to be brought down by a broken, dull-bladed axe, the marvel would lay in the one that wielded it. This is precisely what happened with these Galilean fishermen. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Acts 4.13. And just as this commissional call is to us today, so are his words, I am with you always. In closing, this passage provides for us a great litmus test, does it not? And I ask you who are here today to examine yourself. Not necessarily examine yourself as far as what you do in evangelism. But examine yourself in the terms of discipleship. Are you a disciple of Christ? Let us look at what we have learned today. Are you under the authority of Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord? Are you going into the world in the name of Christ, seeking to do his will? Have you been baptizing and living out the implication of that baptism? Are you trusting in the finished work of Christ or are you trusting in your works, in yourself? Are you dying to self more and more each day that you might live for him? Are you dying to sin? Are you growing in the teaching and commands of Christ found in his word and walking in obedience to them? Is Sunday the only day in which you are exposed to the word of God? Is Sunday the only day in which you are exposed to prayer and devotion of God? If that is true of you, then I seriously doubt that you are walking in obedience to him. How could you? You wouldn't know what to obey. If this is you, then then I know that you would not be evangelizing others. You cannot be a fisher of men when you do not know how to fish and you refuse to take up the only book that gives you insight how. If this is you, repent. If you find yourself not under the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ and you are living for yourself, repent. Now, if you find yourself not dying to self, and being raised with Christ, repent. If you are trusting in yourself, repent. If you're walking contrary to the commands of Christ, repent. Being a faithful disciple of Christ, making disciples of Christ, is what we must be about. It is what this church must be about. The day that it's not, we will close those doors. And lastly, I would like to just comment of the urgency. MacArthur says it's in your bulletin there. Satan continues his efforts to make sin less offensive, heaven less appealing, hell less horrific. And the gospel less urgent. End quote. If I were a physician and one of the one of the girls back there is Christina, say, but she's not back there. Wherever she be. Oh, you are there. <laughs> I thought you were Tiffany. Forgive me. <laughs> Suppose me as a physician who knows the family, and, 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 I, and I, I spot a cancerous growth in her. And I say, ah, I know the history of this family and dealing with cancer. I know what they've been going through these last few months and years. This is only going to upset them. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to hope that maybe they'll come to me and ask me about what I found. But I don't want to upset them. Even though there's a procedure that we could do, we could cut this out now. You know, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. And it's going to bring about pain. And it's going to upset them. The last thing they need is more bad news. I'll be silent. What would you think of me as a physician? What would you think of me as a friend? No, I would call to her, call to her husband. There is something in you that is killing you. It will bring about your destruction if we do not address it now. Believers, there is sin in the unrepentant that is their destruction. And there is an urgency for the gospel that saves. May we not be silent May we not be deceived in believing the lie that Satan purports that you, they, have plenty of time. This commission says go and make, not wait and hope. And we have the attitude of Charles Spurgeon who said, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with their arms about their knees, imploring them to say, If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. Let us not hide this deliverance we have received. Let us speak of the faithfulness of God and His salvation and never conceal it. Let us go, therefore, and make disciples, for He is worthy. Amen.